Dreams are one of those things that sometimes jumble information in our minds, don't they? they we have a dream and there's information that, that kind of makes sense, but the pictures get all messed up and the images that, that come with the dream seem a little strange, a bit confusing. This week I had one of those experiences. At the beginning of the week I went hunting with Jim Rice and we spent three nights in a, a camper trailer as we were deer hunting. The next day I was home and that night apparently my wife was unable to sleep for a while so uh, I believe she turned on some music that was kind of classical nature. That was on the other side of the bedroom but in my mind that music made its way into a dream and I dreamed I was back in the trailer and that for some reason Jim Rice at the other end of the trailer was playing classical music. And I was just surprised that, that in the middle of the night that Jim would be playing this classical music in, in the, the camper. Dreams, they, they confuse you. Well, this morning we'll have a little bit of that happening in our, our text as well. We're, we're coming back to the Song of Solomon here this morning for the third time in our series through this really oft-overlooked poetic book. It's a book that's not spent a, a lot of time in, in sermons, and, and it's filled with this poetry that can somewhat be confusing. In this book, we, we do sing or see the picture of ideal love illustrated. We just sang about love, love divine, love coming down, the ideal perfect love of our Savior. Well, this book gives us ideal love in an illustrated manner. It's praised through song. As an illustration, this book then can help us understand the, the perfect love of our Savior more fully. And also, because it is a portion of God's Word, we can have confidence that there is something in this book for all of us. As I've already suggested, this book is a song rather than a drama. It's a song that has been sung. There's not a storyline for us to follow. It's more like a symphony or a choral arrangement that's composed here. The song, as I tend to refer to it, has several parts in it. And they're arranged in a way that provides movement, but it's movements that's designed to move our emotions along as we see the progression of pure love develop, a love between a man and a woman, this ideal illustration of pure love. By, by the way, we should remember there are three musical voices that, that make up the song. We have the female solo voice, and that's the primary part. She's singing as this young woman who's in, in love. I, I call her the beloved. We also have the lover, the male voice. He is singing the, the part of the man who is truly and completely in love with this woman. He is captivated by, by her love. And then we have the third voice that, that's really a, a choral group. It's the female friends of the beloved. And they sing on occasion, giving us a third perspective from time to time of, of this love. In the beginning of the song, the, the beloved sang of her joy that she had, this newfound love that she had discovered, and, and how she longed to have more time with, with her, her love. She wanted their relationship to grow, and she imagined being with him for longer periods. Her friends sang their encouragement to her, told her to pursue the relationship. Last week, we, we listened as, as the, the, the beloved and the lover, the, the woman and the man, they, they sang back and forth to each other as they spent time together, and their love for one another grew. We, we ended in verse 7 of chapter 2 with a, a sudden warning 
uh, a warning to constrain new love as so as not to arouse intense physical passions prematurely. Well, this morning we're looking at the second main section. Last week, verse 7 of, of chapter 2 ended the first main section of this choral arrangement. Today we're looking at the second main section of, of the song. We, we might think of it as the second movement in this arrangement. In this section, the, the beloved sings an extended solo. The, the whole section, I believe, is, is her singing. It's possible that the male voice sings a couple of the verses because there's a couple of places where there's not clear indication exactly who is singing. But, but I prefer to think of the female soloist singing the, the entire section. We're, we're coming to a section that has intense emotion and, and strong desire. The, the relationship between this young couple ha, has blossomed. And, and they're approaching the point where they will commit to one another in marriage. I've titled the sermon, Will You Marry Me? And, and even though we, we don't come to that question in this text, there's nothing in the text that poses that question, I, I believe we're at that stage of the relationship. That, that stage that, that in the relationship builds to this pivotal question. That it's the question that best represents the relationship that the beloved is singing of this morning. Now, we don't have extensive details about the courtship customs of ancient Israel. But we can certainly assume that in Israel, love would progress in emotions just as it progresses today. Things have not changed between young men and young women as, as they progress in love. The, the, the process of the emotions is, is the same, even if the, the courtship details might be different. So, so think of the time when, when a young couple moves into this exclusive dating relationship, when, or what some might consider courtship. Their, their attention is, is, is fully directed on, on getting to know one another. They want to know this one single person fully. They're, they're giving their heart more and more completely over to this individual. They're, they're closing in on this point where, where they will make the decision to completely give themselves to that other person for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We're, we're approaching that, that moment that, that we would call the engagement when, when the woman will say yes to that magical question, the question, when he pops the question, and she says yes. This morning I want you to think about the emotional turmoil that, that accompanies this stage of a relationship as, as you listen to the words this young woman sings. Think of the excitement, the anticipation, the, the yearning, the apprehension, the, the joy, the, the passion, all of these emotions that, that comprise this stage in a couple's relationship. The beloved's extended solo that we're looking at this morning naturally breaks into to two sections. In the first section, the beloved sings of the lover's passion for her. She sings of his passion for her. The bulk of the section that we're going to look at first actually contains the lover's words. But, but his words are recounted for us through her voice. She is the one singing. 
In the song, she remembers the, the time when her lover came to see her. Either that or she imagines such a time. It, it's hard to tell which is going on because she's recounting things from, from her mind. Are these things that she's imagined and wishes will happen? Or are they things that she remembers have happened? It really doesn't make a difference because we're in song. In verses 8 to 9, the beloved sings of the arrival of the lover. Verse 8, listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the window. He is peering through the lattice. The first section, as I mentioned, ended with a warning in verse 7, that the Warning reference gazelles and hinds as we ended last week. Well, the beloved, she picks up that imagery, the image of, of these gazelles and these young deer, and she envisions her lover coming to her home like one of these animals, this gazelle or the young male deer. She hears his approach. Suddenly, he, he's standing outside the wall of her house behind the lattice. In other words, he's outside her window. In the construction of the day, there was no glass over the window, so they had lattice. And the lattice work would provide the, the privacy while still letting light into the room. Of course, she's in her family's house, notices our wall they standing outside. Her love is right outside. She knows he's peering through the windows, looking through the lattice. Now, he's not a peeping Tom. His, his presence is, is known. Yet he's silent. And his silence heightens the tension. It elevates her suspense. What has he come to say? Will it be more words of love and adoration? In verse 10, the lover breaks his silence. As the beloved continues her solo, she recounts his words so that, that we can hear the, the plea of the lover. The plea. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines. And the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Notice, it's really verses 10 through 13 that compose the, the core of what the, the lover has come to say. That's his expression, that he has come prepared to to. To speak, he, he wraps his words with this repeated refrain, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. He's issuing an invitation. He, he's offering to take her from her house. Whether, again, we should picture this as occurring in reality or in fantasy within the beloved's mind is really irrelevant. Re, remember, this is musical expression. Ideas in, in music do not have to fit tightly together. They're designed to convey emotions. The, the beloved heart's 
skips a beat. Her, her lover is inviting her to come with him. Folded between that repeated refrain, we have verses 11 and 13 containing magnificent descriptions of springtime. The, the winter rains of Israel have ended, that's spring. The flowers are blooming, again, that's spring. The vines are growing, requiring pruning, that's spring. By the way, I know that some of you in your translations probably have something about singing in the second line of verse 12 instead of pruning of vines. The, the difference is because the, the key word in that second line of verse 12 is used only this one time in the entire Bible. It's, it's used once and it's not found in any other source outside the Bible. So the reality is the translators have to make educated guesses as to what that word means. In, in the context... We, we can have confidence that the word has something to do with, with springtime phenomenon. In the spring is also when the turtle doves return to the land. It's, it's the time when the figs ripen and the vines bloom. All these images are telling us about a world that, that breaks forth in new life. That, that makes spring the, the season when thoughts turn to love. That's the picture, the image that's being conveyed here. The lover standing outside her windows, addressing all of her senses through the images as he invites her to think about the, the visual beauty and the fragrances of, of springtime and, and now invites her to join him in love. Let me pause for, for just a moment here and once more caution us as we read the, the song together. We need to caution us, ourselves to read the song carefully. Because of our corrupted culture with our distorted view that we have a casual sex, we, we may find that we have temptation to read this invitation here in the fashion of our culture. We, we may read this and think, here we have a young man trying to convince a young woman to sneak out of her house for an illicit hookup. That is not what is happening. In fact, in a culture that prized virginity and, and purity, such as Israel, such a thought would never enter their minds when they read or hear a song like this. The original hearers of this song would never think about that. They would never sing about illicit relationships and an immoral acts in their songs. It's not possible that that's what's going on here. What is going on here? is that the lover is inviting the beloved to commit to him, to, to arise and to become his. This essentially is an invitation to marriage. This essentially is akin to popping the question. Again, this is song. This conversation could be occurring in the woman's mind. It could be revealing that she's hoping that this proposal will come soon. Or the beloved might be singing about the manner in which her lover did propose to her in the recent past, and she's remembering this, this precious moment. I'll let you envision it as you wish. Songs seldom give us sufficient information to eliminate all debate about what the settings are. They're designed so that they'll invoke our imaginations and, and stir up our emotions. Think about it. If you're a married couple... Most likely, the moment you hear about someone becoming engaged, you remember the moment of your engagement. You remember the surroundings. You remember the words. You, you likely remember the anticipation. If you're the, 
the guy, the anticipation dealt with, will I get the words out without stumbling? And anticipating, waiting for her response. What will she say? If you're the gal, the anticipation is more along the lines of, I wonder when those words will come. When is he going to ask? Is this the moment? Certainly you remember the, the joy as well when it became official that you were committed to one another. Well, the song of verses 10 through 13 is designed to trigger those sorts of memories in the, the people of ancient Israel, to stir up those emotions. What is clear in verse 14 is that after the man expresses his appeal for her to join him, our beloved does not immediately respond. Granted, it, it might only be a moment that, that she pauses, and to the man waiting for that response, that moment would seem like an eternity. Still, the, the lover is waiting for response, and the time seems endless, and he can't stand the silence, so, so he adds an appeal to his plea, an appeal for her to respond. He, he doesn't want her to remain like a hidden dove, inaccessible to him. He wants to, to see her beauty. He wants to hear her glorious voice. He begs her to respond. Having heard the lover's plea, the beloved responds with a plea of her own. Verse, look at verse 15. The plea of the beloved. Catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. This really is a difficult verse to interpret. It may be the most difficult verse in the, the song. First, it's unclear who exactly is speaking. I, I'm imagining that it's the beloved continuing to sing, and even that's not totally clear, but even if she's the one singing, whose words are she singing? Are these his words continuing or her words? Uh, on, on top of that, the, the meaning of the images that, that are being provoked here are unclear. In other places in the song, the, the, the word vineyard refers to, to the, the precious beauty of the beloved. Is that the idea here? If, if that is the idea, then this is a statement of some sort of danger to their physical beauty. Verse 13 had just mentioned vines that were in bloom, pointing to the springtime, the, the time of love. Well, are they picking up the idea of those vines and talking about them in a collective setting with this image? Is this a vineyard of vines? Is that idea being picked up somehow? The bottom line is, I'm not sure. Of course, personally, I find that a fairly common occurrence when, when I listen to music. I don't tend to think very well in poetic images. I'm too concrete. I'm too linear in my thinking. Poetry usually just leaves me lost. In this case, though, I discovered as I studied that most commentators are just as confused as I am. So I feel more comfort with that. In general, what we know this verse is, is doing is, is this containing a plea to protect the love of the young couple. Love that that's blossoming at this time. It needs, there needs to be protection so that nothing will spoil it. Most likely, uh, foxes were known to eat flowers. And if young foxes did get loose in a, in a vineyard, there'd be great damage being done to the vineyard. So that's the, the background for the image. 
So it's an idea of protection. Protection needs to be provided not to let that happen. So this is an image that in some sense is a protection of their precious love. He's called for her to arise and give herself completely to him. She responds with a, a, a plea to protect their precious love. Having stated that plea of protection, the, the, the beloved sings her commitment. In verse 16, we have the commitment of the beloved. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bethar. These would have been welcome words for the lover to hear. The beloved is committing herself to him. She is ready to enter a covenant relationship with him. She is entering into a pledge of covenant loyalty by saying, I will give myself to you. You are mine and I am yours. In other words, we would consider this as saying yes when he pops the question. The covenant pledge that the beloved makes to the lover is filled with erotic overtones. She will not hold back from giving all of herself to him. She will give herself fully to her lover and and take him fully as her own possession. She will invite him to partake of the pleasures that, that she offers to him of herself. She imagines him enjoying her physically, intimately, until the morning arrives. Again, we cannot read anything unseemly into these verses. God has designed physical intimacy to, to give pleasure to a man and a woman within the context of a covenant marriage. The beloved is fully anticipating the, these proper pleasures as she commits to, to forming a, a covenant relationship with her lover. She will joyfully invite him to, to enjoy what she alone can offer him. That is the commitment she's making. In the first part of this section, we, we've seen the, the female solo sing the lover's passion for her as the beloved. And she's responded to, to his passion with a commitment to, to give herself fully to him in a, in a covenant relationship. She's pledged herself to him. In the second part of the section, the, the female solo continues singing. And now she sings as, as the beloved, singing her passion for the lover. It's her turn to sing of her love for him. In the first part of the section, we had the lover who, who sought the beloved. And, and for a time, as he stood outside her window and, and sought her, she eluded him because she, she did not respond to his plea. She, she was silent. He begged for her to make herself known to him. Well, now the roles are flipped. Now it will be the, the beloved who seeks the, her lover, and, and he is the one who eludes her until her frustration is almost to the breaking point. Let's read the first four verses of, of chapter 3. On my bed, night after night, I sought him. Him whom my soul lo- loves. I sought him but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him who my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. The watchmen who make their rounds in the city found me. And I said, 
Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. To, to me, the, the setting for this part of the song appears as if it's a dream. There, there's images in it that, that seem jumbled much like a dream would appear. The beloved's in her bed night after night, and as she lays there, she's dreaming of her lover. It, it seems as if this is a recurring pattern, night after night, that she lays there thinking about himself. I, I can easily imagine that, that she goes to bed yearning for the day soon. That, that he will be lying beside her. They're at that stage of, of the relationship where she knows their marriage is, is advancing, is coming soon. So she lays there yearning for that moment. And as she sleeps, her yearning transforms into a dream of her seeking him. Maybe the beloved remembers the hesitancy that we read about in the previous chapter when he came outside her window and she did not respond immediately to his call for her to arise. Now she, she arises and he's not there. So she leaves her bed and she leaves her house and she seeks him in the town. In fact, part of the reason that I envision that this is best seen as a dream is that it's highly unlikely that a young woman would wander around town alone at night. That just didn't happen in that era. Her family would not allow her to, to engage in such behavior. Such actions were, were only proper for a prostitute. A, a pure young lady would not do this. At any rate, the, the beloved pictures herself as wandering around town looking for her lover, and she runs into the watchman, the, the man whose duty it is to know everything that's happening in the town, to know who's moving about. After all, the watchmen, their job was to prevent outside marauders from coming into the, the town and, and doing damage. So they needed to know who was moving about. Yet even though these are the men who should know all the news in town, they have no idea where she can find her lover. They could not assist her. You, you, you get this emotion of, of near panic as she's looking for him, and she can't find him. Even the people that should know where he is can't find him. They're unable to assist in her search. Then, joyously, just as she goes a little bit further, perhaps around the next corner, she finds her lover. The relief in verse 4 is palatable. She, she's not given up her search be, because her love compels her to continue. And here he is. She catches hold of him and, and she does not let him go. She, she will hold on to him until she can bring him into her house. Specifically, it's her mother's house. She holds on to him until she brings him into the very room in which she was conceived. She's delighted here to think of intimately loving her lover in the very same room in which she herself was conceived. Again, it should not require too much of a stretch in, in our imaginations to relate to the emotions related in these verses. Many a man and woman have had a restless night, as, or may, probably even many nights, as, as they approach their own wedding day. They're, they're filled with nerves of all kinds. Will everything go okay? They're, they're filled with anticipation. We will be Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so 
soon. They're filled with excitement. Maybe even a bit of excitement mixed with apprehension. The, the wedding night follows the wedding day. Yet, all of these things combine, all of this excitement, under all of it, there, there's a concern that perhaps something will yet pop up and it will prevent this day from happening. What if it never comes about? The, the wait is agonizing. You know, even if you've never been married, I know you can still understand somewhat the anticipation. You, you may not be able to fully anticipate the event of, of a wedding, but there have undoubtedly been days in your lives that have carried spe- special significance. Days that you have, have anticipated for much time, and you have felt similar emotions as you anticipate and waited for the, these events in the days leading up to these significant events, what if something pre- prevents it from occurring in the end? That's how the beloved is feeling as she sings these, these words, anticipating the, the event of being married to the one she loves. The beloved has sung of her passion for her lover, a passion that, that rivals his passion. She cannot wait for the days that she brings him in and intimately engages with him. Still, this section of the song, the, this movement in, in the choral arrangement is not finished. The, the female soloist has, has one more chorus to sing, one more verse. And surprisingly, this final chorus is the warning about increasing passion. Verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. This section of the song closes with the very same warning of the first section. This warning was unexpected the first time we encountered it, and is rather unexpected again. The, the beloved's love has grown to the, the point where it's this inter, intense yearning to, to give herself to the one she loves and she knows he wants to give himself to her as well. Yet the message that she communicates at this stage is not one of the bliss of such yearning, but rather one of the danger of such yearning. As one commentator worded it, Love like hers is too hot to handle, except under the right circumstance. She's warning against prematurely kindling such strong passion. There's no doubt that that for the beloved and and the lover, their their ultimate intimacy will, will be all the more wonderful because it's been anticipated. And that anticipation has generated greater joy in the future. Now, as a small illustration of this, as I was working on my sermon yesterday, Grace and Taylor Feebig, or Grace had Taylor Feebig over, and, and the two of them were together to bake cookie brownies. So while I'm working on this sermon for about half an hour, I'm smelling these cookie brownies. Part of what made that brownie better when I sampled it was the anticipation of that wait 
the aroma. It added to my enjoyment. Physical intimacy for the beloved and her lover will be similar. The anticipation will heighten the pleasure. They, they will experience wonderful joy when the moment comes that, that they can celebrate their desire for one another fully within the, the, the closeness of covenant commitment. Yet the, that desire is reaching the irresistible point. The desire for that moment is getting near irresistible. And she warns against allowing such desire to build when the opportunity to fulfill is nowhere in the near future. It really is, as we put this warning about increasing passion into the context of, uh, of the building passion that, that we see here, that, that we once again find the lesson for this section. The, the way I would word the lesson for this section, the third lesson that we get from the Song of Solomon, is that we must intentionally safeguard love's purity as passion increases. We must intentionally safeguard love's purity as passion increases. As I've said more than once over the, the first couple of weeks of this series, God has designed human love between a man and a woman to naturally build toward physical intimacy. Passion is normal. Desire is good. God has made it His design. Yet God has also given us a framework within which such passion and desire can find their full expression. That framework is the covenantal commitment of marriage. Outside that framework, any exercise of physical intimacy is a corruption of God's good gift. It's a violation of His design. The, the challenge comes in the fact that the desire for intimacy, that the passion for, for sexual expression, it precedes the opportunity to express it. Men and women will yearn to give themselves fully to one another before the covenant commitment is in place. At least that's the case in our culture where men and women date to find their, their spouse. As the relationship progresses to the level of love that's appropriate for marriage, the, the desire for intimacy progresses as well. That, that, that's not a problem, but it is a challenge. It, it's a challenge because steps need to be taken to safeguard the purity of love as God intended it. Uh, of course, it is a problem if we Adopt the attitude of our culture that, that refuses any delay of any sort when it comes to gratifying our desires. We have more and more kitchen gadgets and more and more prepared dishes so that our desire for food can find near immediate fulfillment. Next day shipping is now expected because we, we do not want to wait for the newest item that we just ordered. So if we find that our bodies desire sexual intimacy, our society tells us that, that we should go ahead and, and find immediate satisfaction for that desire. That's the culture around us. But that satisfaction that our culture offers to us, that is not fulfillment. Yielding to sexual intimacy outside marriage is a poor shadow of the gift that God has designed. Not to mention, is a violation of, of God's command 
God has commanded us to avoid it so that we will be able to enjoy the, the, the full gift that he has given to us. God has commanded us to preserve sexual intimacy for marriage because that is the only way we can have full fulfillment. We cheat ourselves of God's good gift if we do not safeguard love's purity, preserving intimacy for marriage. Notice, I use the word intentionally. We must intentionally safeguard love's purity. Safeguarding purity will, will not happen accidentally. It, it requires intentional steps. One, one of the safeguards that, that I would recommend is, is a relatively short engagement period. When a man and woman reaches the, the point of engagement, they, they have both internally and publicly proclaimed that, that they intend to give themselves fully to one another. Holding back from making that proclamation a reality becomes increasingly difficult. Love has been fully awakened. It is seeking its fulfillment. It is at the stage this woman is at now. The engagement period is also the time when couples need to revisit the boundaries that they've placed around physical intimacy. This is the time to increase boundaries, not lower them. Of course, this assumes that the couple has had boundaries all along. Dating relationships should begin with the establishment of physical boundaries. Their physical boundaries are not something you add later on. As the relationship progresses, it's helpful for each person to, to have an outsider that, that will be someone of the same gender that can check in with them regarding their, their maintenance of the established boundaries that are in place. Outside accountability is helpful because the urge and the, for the desire precedes the opportunity to fulfill it within marriage. Another safeguard that will help is one that we should all be developing daily. And that is the practice of delayed gratification. What otherwise we would know as biblical discipline. Biblical discipline really is training ourselves to wait for delayed gratification. James 4, 7 tells us, resist the devil. Well, the devil is constantly telling us to grab things that God has not given to us already. It might be buying something on credit. We want to grab more than God has given to us financially, so we buy it on credit. It might be stealing time from our boss. We want to grab more pleasure and, and, and entertainment and relaxation than God has given us, so we grab that time away from our boss. Or it might be indulging in intimacy outside of marriage. Training ourselves to resist the devil in any area will strengthen us in all areas. Furthermore, all of us, every single one of us, should be living lives of, of, of self-discipline, lives that are models for the other people in our church of what delayed gratification looks like. They see us practicing biblical discipline in our own lives. We should be models of those who can, so that those who need it can look to us and see how we are delaying gratification and then learn from our examples to how to intentionally guard themselves in the area of purity. We must intentionally safeguard love's purity 
as passion increases. That's the lesson that we learned from this third section of the song this morning. As we close this, this morning, I want to take just a moment and review the, the previous lessons that we've learned that, that build to this third lesson. Lesson number one was love is worth pursuing as a God-given gift. Lesson number two was that we must constrain new love until it can grow, or until it can rightly grow. We must constrain new love. Lesson three is we must intentionally safeguard love's purity as it grows, as passion increases. Living out these lessons will, will cause us to live in a countercultural manner. But that is the Christian life. As children of God, we are different from the, the culture around us. We, we sh- expect that our differences will show up in the way we live. Let's help one another do that. Let's help one another live differently, especially in this area of purity. We must intentionally safeguard love's purity as passion increases. Intentionally safeguard love's purity as passion increases. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to continue today going through the Song of Solomon. We thank you for the wisdom that is encapsulated in this song. Wisdom of how we are to live here in this world, how we are to enjoy the, the gift of intimacy that you have given humanity. Father, we also know as we've sung that as we see this illustration of ideal love, we learn so much more about the love of our Savior, who is love divine, all, love ex- all loves excelling, as we sang before this sermon. The one who shows us love in his fullness. So Father, as we learn about ideal love, we know that our Savior is love's ideal in flesh. So Father, I pray that we would all benefit from this series, that you would help us. May we live lives of purity, lives of joy, lives celebrating your love for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.